Welcome to the Josiah's Podcast. We are back at last after a long pause. My name is Pat Edmund Waldstein, and the histrionic music that you just heard is from Max Steiner's score to the movie Gone with the Wind. The reason why I chose this music is that our theme for today's episode is the movies. We have a large panel to draft our favorite movies and discuss them today, namely... Josiah's contributor, Marlo Gazzoli. How are you, Marlo? I'm fine, thanks. How are you, Pater? Yeah, I'm doing well. Yusit Justitium editor, Patrick J. Smith of Bedford. Hi, Pat. Hello, Pater. How are you? Doing very well. Uh, Yusit Justitium contributor, Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Hello. And finally, Josiah's contributor, Urban Hannon. Hello, Urban. Hey, Pater. And Urban will be leading our discussion today. He's got a whole set of rules for how we're going to do this uh, worked out, and he's going to make it a competition. Over to you, Urban. We're a competitive bunch, so this should be fun. So Potter had suggested that for the summer, we do a little bit lighter episode and give you a chance to hear some of our favorite movies uh, here among the Josiah's staff and friends. And so we thought it'd be fun to have people come on and share some recommendations. But instead of just kind of sitting here and listing off one by one different movies we like, we thought it might be a bit more fun for you and for us to put this into the form of a game. So this is going to be a movie draft. And if you listen to any movie podcast, you've probably heard this format before. It's sort of like a fantasy sports draft, but is available even to those of us who don't know anything about sports whatsoever. Uh, And thankfully, our many lawyer friends of the Josias have confirmed for us that intellectual property law does not have any sort of say over this kind of game, and we are free to use this on this podcast and any (laughs) podcast. So I'm going to go ahead and run through a little bit of the rules of our game for today, and then we'll just start drafting. So basically, the five of us here are going to be drafting one movie each across six categories. So we'll be drafting a costume drama, a rom-com, a heist movie, either a silent movie or a musical, a Catholic movie, and a wild card. So what that means is that when it's your turn, you can draft in any of the six categories that you have opened. So there's no particular order you have to draft in. If you have a heist movie you really want and you're concerned others are going to take it, jump in and get that first. But once a movie is chosen in any of the six categories, it's then off the board for every category. So there won't be any repeats of movies. So each of us will have six distinct movies. And if there's a dispute at any point along the way about whether something fits in a particular category, then we'll get to have some fun podcast arguing about it for a while. But at the end of the day, majority rules. So if Potter tries to choose some kind of rom-com that we don't think is a rom-com, then we'll fight it out and three votes out of the five of us will decide whether he gets to take it in that category or not. Majority Um, rule is fine for games because it's not real life. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) The movie draft does not necessarily follow integral principles, but that's okay. And finally, uh, we will only be drafting feature-length films. So no miniseries, no TV shows, no shorts, no music videos, etc. All right. So before we kick off the game itself, 
I want to just talk through a few of these categories and also give you, our listeners, a chance to get to know each of the players a little bit better. So again, our six categories are going to be costume drama, rom-com, heist, silent slash musical, Catholic, and wildcard. Now, wildcard is super straightforward. You can literally pick anything you want. Any feature-length film is available for wildcard. You might strategically go ahead and save that for last, since you probably won't be fighting with anyone else for whatever your random wildcard selection is. The other category that I think should be pretty straightforward is Catholic, because these Catholic picks do not have to be explicitly Catholic movies in any way. Not least of all because, secondo me, explicitly Catholic movies are almost universally terrible. <laughs> but we can debate that as we go to. There was actually a priest in my old religious community who joked that he had taken a private vow never to watch a Christian movie again. Um, but in this case, any esoteric pick that you can make the case for that it's Catholic in some way, we're going to go with it. So if you think that Top Gun Maverick is somehow a Catholic film, <laughs> let us know. And it's yours. But these other four categories, we should talk through a little bit. So costume drama. Amanda, I want to turn to you. What is a costume drama? And what is it about costume dramas that we love as lovers of the movies? Definitely. Um, so if you look up the term costume drama in a dictionary, it's very simply a movie set in the past. But, you know, I, I think when we think of the term, we have a different connotation. Uh, some might say that costume dramas are sort of a subdrama, uh, subgenre of historical dramas. Perhaps they're more defined by their focus on maybe a romance or high society settings, whereas maybe a war movie, for example, might be described as a historical epic. Personally, I think this sort of parsing is a bit tiresome. Um, it doesn't really make any sense beyond movies that women like versus maybe movies that men like. So personally, I'd rather use the term period film or historical film. But after that bit of throat clearing, what you know, what makes a good costume drama? People may say that they love um, costume drama because it provides a sense of escapism. But what I think they really mean is immersion, a, a sort of a complete uh, enveloping aesthetic that even if it's not 100% perfectly ac historically accurate, um, keeps us very firmly in a different era. We're looking for something that sort of lifts us out of our ordinary lives, something we can't find in our own age, whether that's sumptuous beauty or thrilling historical battles or even feeling closer to a historical figure that intrigues us. And I think a good costume drama accomplishes this not only by, you know, the usual movie tricks, cinematography, acting, a soundtrack, but also by attention to historical detail. Um, obviously, we're never going to obtain 100% historical accuracy, but what a good costume drama must aim for is sort of a cohesive, historically sensible world building, if you will. Um, and I think one great example of what not to do that sort of echoed across the internet was that dreadful Netflix persuasion movie that everyone sort of universally <laughs> panned and and but why did people hate this movie so much well you know the language makeup hair you name it just pulled the viewer right out of the experience you really weren't immersed um in jane austen you weren't immersed in the story or in the regency time period and uh, i think far too often movies sort of think that their audience wouldn't understand a character that doesn't speak like a TikTok star or have, 
you know, Instagram makeup or something like that. But I think the opposite is true. Um, when you throw in the modern wrenches, that ruins the immersion, ruins the storytelling, it breaks the spell. Um, and that's what we're looking for in a costume drama, a period film or whatever you want to call them. Um, we want to be entranced by a story that makes us feel that we've touched the past. So just one question for you, Amanda. Thanks for that very much. Is there a particular year cutoff for when a movie can be set and still count as a costume drama? For example, obviously mm. this isn't a film, but would something like Stranger Things count yeah. as a period piece? I mean, this is very deliberately 80s, this from casting to costume to surrounding kind of accoutrements of the show is very much trying to lift you out of 2022 and put you back in a time. But is that far enough back to be a costume drama or a period piece? Yeah, I, you know, I think it would be. Um, it's certainly not your archetypical costume drama, which again, people might think of as a Jane Austen adaptation or Merchant Ivory film or something like sure. that. But I, I totally think it is, you know, when, when you're watching a, a movie like that or a show like that, and, you know, you, you feel like you're immersed in the 70s, 80s, uh, 20th century, what have you. I, you know, I think, I think that counts. All right. I follow. All right. Thanks very much, Amanda. Let's turn to category number two and our resident rom-com expert, Putter Edmund Waldstein. <laughs> Tell us what, uh, what's a rom-com? What counts as a rom-com? What do you love about these movies? Okay. Well, um, it's nice of you to say I'm an expert. Uh, <laughs> uh, growing up, we didn't actually watch very many movies in my household, but I have four sisters, and uh, particularly my older sister really loved rom-coms, so I did get to taste some of the delights of this genre. I think that um, movies share with with drama the the object of sort of depicting human action insofar as it's conducive to happiness or misery. And rom-coms do this in a very accessible way. So they're romantic comedies. They're showing people who are supposed to be relatable, that is sort of similar to you, not so much greater than you, that their lives seem sort of unattainable and not so much worse than you, that you despise them. But people who are sort of on your level uh, doing things that conduce to their happiness or misery. Um, usually there's a happy ending in a rom-com that's sort of <laughs> built into the genre, happy ending. And happy ending in this case means happy ending in the uh, the way we generally think of it in movies, namely the boy and the girl get together. Um, yep. True love wins in the end. My favorite English novel is Pride and Prejudice. And Pride and Prejudice has a huge influence on rom-coms. Many of them have this sort of Pride and Prejudice setup where originally the man and the woman don't like each other for whatever reason, and then they change. They have a kind of conversion experience and the hatred turns Hi, to love. Sue. Yes. Yeah, I had Pride and Prejudice very much in mind when we made the decision not to include miniseries in this draft because oh, I'm sure bad. that would have ranked very high for all of us. <laughs> that and so Ride Sack were my two miniseries that uh, unfortunately are off the table here. Though, of course, there's a film version with Kira Knightley if anyone wants it. Um, no, thank so you. So Potter, yeah, agreed. Uh, Potter, I guess my, my one question about rom-coms here in terms of our draft today is how strict are we going to be about the kind of classic format. So this format, obviously, 
goes back to 1934, at least in terms of Hollywood movies, and then was sparked again with a certain movie in 1989 that set off the modern rom- rom-com run. Yeah. But the the sort of setup you just laid out of a man and woman who start off as kind of enemies or at least opposed in some way, then various uh, sort of hilarity takes place over the course of a film. And at the end, they realize they're in love or something like this. Um, do we need all of those elements for it to count as a rom-com today? I think so. I think we should, we should, uh, you should be able to make a case at least that each of those elements is somehow present, even if it's not maybe it literally the case, but the, you know, the, you can find it somewhere in that story. Sounds good to me. All right. So our third category is heist movies and Marlo, why don't you tell us a bit about heist movies, what you like about them, what we should be looking for in that category. Take it away. Well, obviously, a somewhat essential component of a heist film is that there has to be a heist. And I suppose a heist generally being that you have to go in and steal something. And generally speaking, in terms of the genre, we have kind of the... The first part, which is the assembling of a team, where you have all these different sort of characters who each have their own part to play in the operation of the heist, right? We'll see them all training, usually combining, practicing. We get to know them. Then we will have, of course, the actual heist itself, which will be usually exciting, with all sorts of things happening. Perhaps some things will go wrong. Perhaps there might be a betrayal. Apparently, back in the days of yore, back when the movie industry was regulated by the code, the uh, heists always had to fail. Right? Hmm. You couldn't have a film depicting people where a major crime is actually successful. So the heists would inevitably fail. But of course, once the code went away, we start to see the more perhaps more familiar genre today of successful heists involving uh, action and tension and suspense. And then, of course, you might get to see something that happens after the heist as well. And I think those are kind of the general elements. You have to have a heist and you kind of have to have a team, I think are the most consistent things. But it's rather interesting that even though you have heist as the focus or the essential quality, I think you can break down heist movies into two categories. One where the heist is everything and it's all excitement and popcorn. And then when the heist is rather the the setting or the, the vehicle for some more character-based story where uh, the heist is just the the means for some larger character development or commentary. Okay. So I have one question about that latter subcategory there um, where the heist is there is an essential part of the story, but is setting up this sort of larger character drama that takes place maybe before or after the heist. And my question is for this to count as a heist movie, do we have to actually see the heist there's two movies in particular I'm thinking of that may immediately come to mind for everyone here, uh, both 90s flicks, where I think for budgetary concerns both times, the heist itself was not shown, 
but it's still an absolutely essential part of the overall story. So what do we think today? Do we need to see an armed robbery in order for this to fit the category? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think the heist can still be foremost in the in the film without actually showing or even necessarily focusing so much on the heist itself, which definitely does seem to be a, a thing that exists in the genre. I like that answer. All right, sweet. Thanks very much, Marlo. Now, our last category to talk through is actually a combination of two categories. So at first, Potter had suggested just doing silent films and me being the pathetic, uncultured American that I am who has seen remarkably few silent films, uh, suggested that we at least make this a category of just not talking movies. So everyone either has to be silent or has to be singing. So this is going to be silent or musical. And I, this morning, as I was thinking through this, I remember Peter Kraft used to say, or I guess still says all the time that this is how heaven will be. In heaven, there will be no talking, <laughs> that everything will be either silence or song. Uh, and I'm not sure that the songs we'll be hearing about today are going to have much to do with heaven necessarily. <laughs> but Pat Smith, talk to us about silent movies and musicals. Well, where to begin to <laughs> two concepts that are, as you say, a foretaste of the eternal. Um, I, it's a big concept because really, if, if you look at silent movies, you have the whole range of movies we've discussed. Um, including uh, topics we haven't discussed. For example, uh, Metropolis is a science fiction movie. Um, Alfred Hitchcock's uh, early movies were silent movies. Um, they're also Catholic movies and silent movies. Um, and I think what draws me to silent movies is how like talkies they are um now they don't have sound obviously that's the big difference but in terms of performance in terms of presence of actors and actresses in many ways i think they're not at all different and in some ways i think uh, they haven't been equaled i mean chaplin's silent movies are as good today as they ever were uh and i think We'll get into this a little later, depending on whether my picks are stolen or not. Um, <laughs> I think there are performances you get in silent movies that you you don't get today. Um, musicals, I have much less to say about. Um, but I will say this. I think musicals represent an era when Hollywood was hitting on all cylinders um, in terms of production, in terms of casting. Uh, I am no judge of musical theater, so I can't tell you much about the book or the songs. But in terms of well-made movies that succeed at their goal, one can say musicals were doing this much longer than non-musical Hollywood films in the same era. You can look at even as late as Hello, Dolly, and see that that movie is just a slicker, more coherent production than a lot of the things that were contemporary, whether you like it or not. Yeah, um, interestingly, it's the musical movie that sort of crashed musical movies, but we can maybe chat about that later. Um, I agree with you very much. So one question for you or for anyone about musicals here and what counts for us today. So 
There's a, a famous interview back when Stephen Colbert was still bearable to watch. Uh, Stephen Colbert had Anna Kendrick on one time, and he complimented her, telling her that she was in the highest grossing musical of all time, namely Pitch Perfect 2. And she responded to him that this was a little pedantic, but if you're a musical theater fan, you're already a pedant. And so she needed to clarify that technically Pitch Perfect is not a musical because the characters know they're singing and the songs aren't moving the story forward or integrated into the story in any way. It's just a song or a movie about people singing songs. So I wanted to ask for our purposes today, does it need to be a kind of strict, proper musical of the characters burst into song spontaneously in this kind of operatic way? Or would something like the Coen brothers inside Lewin Davis or any of the four iterations we've had of A Star is Born, do these sorts of things count as musicals for our purposes today? No. Okay. <laughs> Very good I like answer. It. <laughs> I, I, I mean, from my perspective, when someone says a musical, you, you know what they mean. They, yeah. they mean My Fair Lady. They don't mean um, A Star is Born or some movie where people know they're singing. Uh, by that standard, I mean, the, the range of musicals expands almost to the point where the category doesn't have any significance. That makes sense to me. All right. So let's get into the draft itself. Uh, today, we're going to be drafting in a snake fashion, which just means that once we go through once and everyone has their first movie, we'll then reverse the order on the way back just to try to keep things fair. And so we'll go through until everyone has filled out all six categories. So a total of 30 movies here, if my basic algebra is correct. Uh, so I used some... Uh, terribly important website that I think was called random.com or something to determine a draft order for us this morning or this evening, if you're in Austria. Uh, and so our draft order is going to be as follows. Putter Edmund will have the first pick. Marlo will have pick number two. Amanda right in the middle. I will be number four and sweet Pat Smith will be on the turn picking two on the way back. So and it's especially fair. I love it. Exactly. <laughs> any, uh, any last questions? Nope. All right. Let the games begin. Potter Edmonds, first pick. Okay. Very good. I am going to go with the category Catholic, and I'm going to pick one of the most famous movie depictions of Catholicism. We can talk about whether it's Catholic or anti-Catholic, but my pick is The Godfather. 1972, directed by Francis Ford Coppola, starring uh, Marlon Brando and Al Pacino. Incredible film. And the, cl the climactic scene, as far as I'm concerned, is the baptism of uh, Michael Corleone's nephew, uh, whose godfather he is. And while he's renouncing Satan in the name of this little baby, his henchmen are assassinating all his enemies. Unbelievable Unbelievable scene. Phenomenal movie. So fun fact, I'm currently in Colorado, but I actually am flying to New York tomorrow. And for the next couple of weeks, I will be staying at that exact parish, the Basilica oh, wow. of St. Patrick's Old Cathedral, where the baptism scene is shot. Excellent. That it is actually how I... No, oh, I'm sorry. On. I was going to say, that's actually how I describe when my, my eldest was baptized, how 
to my to my relatives who had never seen an extraordinary form baptism. <laughs> it's the baptism from the Godfather, and that uh, <laughs> that's basically everyone was on board immediately. Yeah, uh, the mob like violence have been... was removed after the council, of course. Right, without the murder. <laughs> <laughs> right, Vatican II abolished murder. <laughs> I feel like the Godfather should have been cited in a lot more of these bishops' letters about uh, recent Latin sacrament legislation that's great but i mean this movie it does raise for me kind of a question that we have to raise as integralists uh discussing the movies you know would would socrates allow movies into the republic um i had a confrere here in having courts he he left the monastic life eventually though but he uh was a big enemy of the movies um and he would cite tertullians on spectacles uh, to prove his point, Tertullian um, sees the the theater and the circus and the arena as pompa diaboli, as the sort of thing Michael Corleone was renouncing in that baptism scene, um, as being essentially idolatrous and immodest and um, sort of an enticement to take delight in evil. Yeah, not to go too far down a rabbit hole here in our first of 30 rounds of this draft. (laughs) Fair enough. Yeah, I think of uh, the scene in Confessions 2 where St. Augustine is talking about the theater in his day and lamenting the fact that he and his friends go to these things and weep over the bad things that befall these actually very bad people rather than weeping over their own sins. So as much as we love the art of film and the... uh, diversion and just art that movies bring to us. I think all of those are good questions to keep in mind. All right. Pick number two, Marlo. All right. Man, after uh, listening to everybody else's uh, descriptions of their genres, I'm finding myself uh, questioning some of my, my early thoughts. We can fight it out too. (laughs) Fight it out. Okay. Well then, I am going. I'm going to offer my thoughts on the romantic comedy then, and I think people are going to disagree with whether or not this fits into the genre. But I think I'll try and defend it the best I can. I'm going to go with Midnight in Paris. Okay, so make the argument. It's well, there's romance and it's a comedy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what more could you want? Um, well, what was what were the elements that you said? I can't say I'm terribly familiar with the genre as so. The such. kind of typical thing is that you start off, you've got a man and a woman who, in some way, are kind of set at odds with each other. She doesn't like him, or he's frustrated with her, or they have some other circumstance in their life that sort of has them in a competitive or antagonistic position. She's engaged to his brother. Yes, exactly. Uh, Or he is putting her little bookstore out of business or whatever the case may be. And by the end of the film, they have found love in each other and a lot of uh, funny hijinks in the meantime. So I think that's kind of the typical script. Okay. Yes. Well, obviously, it would seem that Midnight in Paris would not hit that category since we don't really meet the girl that he falls in love with until 
later on in the film. And indeed, we don't even know if their love will be successful, since after all, we see that at the beginning, Owen Wilson playing Owen Wilson is... Uh, <laughs> I thought he was playing in... Woody Allen in that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, anyway. <clears throat> Woody Allen He's... as Woody... Or o- Owen Wilson as Owen Wilson as Woody Allen. Exactly, exactly. Since he's engaged, but we can tell he isn't actually terribly happy with his choice. And then we see through the magic of uh, the, by traveling back in time, he discovers really what the, uh, the actual sort of relationship he should be working to for and learns to live in the present moment rather than idealizing some golden age that never existed. Well, all right, let's put it to a vote. Uh, what do we think? Is this a rom-com or not a rom-com? I think it is. I don't know. I'm also going to vote down. Sorry. What? I vote down. Amanda says yes, Amanda says yes. Pat Smith is the the casting vote. Um, Sure, why not? All right. Midnight in Paris in rom-com. Amanda, are you? Okay, so I think... I am going to also choose my rom-com, and that is Clueless, the great 1995 Amy Heckerling film. And um, as Potter noted, Jane Austen, I think, is at the center of all good rom-coms. And of course, Clueless is the best adaptation of Emma, in my opinion. Um, Emma's one of my favorite novels. And I mean, this movie, it's just a delight, has all the great ingredients for rom-com. You have a female lead who actually on paper does not seem too likable, but she's just, you know, imbued with this uh, positivity and uh, she's witty, charming. She's actually quite intelligent, even though, you know, of course she's superficial and vain and, and lives this sort of plastic Barbie world in the nineties and in Beverly Hills. Um, But, you know, at the end of her story, just like uh, her literary counterpart, Emma, she becomes humbled. She becomes committed to, to being a better person. Um, and then, of course, you have your second ingredient, which is uh, Paul Rudd, um, who is always, you know, an excellent choice for charming male lead. And, um, you know, he works as Mr. Knightley here. He's the catalyst for her examination of conscience. And, um, you know, it's just a great uh, slow burn. It has the mutual annoyance factor at the beginning that we <laughs> talked about. Um, it gives way to mutual respect. And at the end... Um, you get a great happily ever after. Um, just, just a, I would say one of my favorite movies of all time. Great, great pick. Yeah. Alicia Silverstone, unfortunately not the career. I think we hoped that she might have following this movie, but yeah, uh, on the point, uh, not that we need to go too deep into any of that, but uh, I will say that on the point about her being an intelligent character here, one fun fact about this movie that I thought was hilarious is that when she's giving that speech at some point in the film, she says Hattian when she's trying to say Haitian. And yes, and that was real. That was exactly, a real exactly thing she did. That's what I was say. Alicia Silverstone. Everyone was like, no one correct her. It's too perfect for the character. Don't correct her. Um, Yeah, and she also has a great line um, when she corrects uh, Paul Rudd's sort of snooty college girlfriend, study friend. And she, you know, she she, uh, mistakenly quotes Hamlet and Cher corrects her and says, you know, 
no, that was Polonius. That wasn't Hamlet. And she's like, well, have you read Hamlet? I think she says, no, but I know my Mel Gibson. <laughs> and it's just, it's just, a, I mean, this whole script is just so wonderful and, and hilarious. Every, there's, I think maybe like 300 quotes on IMDb because like every line of, of this is, is great. It's gold. Outstanding. All right, so it comes to me, and I've got a pick, and then Pat gets two picks, and then it's back to me. So I've got to try to figure out what pick of mine do I think Pat is most likely to try to take right now. Um, well, I think given that I sort of gave maybe gave my high strategy away already by mentioning the fact that I was thinking of a couple movies that do not actually picture the heist, I'm going to go ahead and fill in that category, and I will be taking the most famous and by far the best movie ever made about the Lufthansa heist in New York, namely Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. So this is a film from the early 90s, I think hands down Martin Scorsese's masterpiece. Uh, and at the very center of this movie is this famous heist made much more famous by this movie. Once you've gotten all of these gangsters together of Ray Liotta and Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro and so forth coming together to rob the airline Lufthansa. Um, and there's the whole kind of build up to that as Ray Liotta um, from childhood on decides he wants to be a gangster. And at that point you think, right, this is sort of the nineties version of the Godfather um, though a little different because you're not following a mob boss. Um, you're following just kind of a low-level guy on his way in. But it's still this very kind of romanticized version of mafia life. And then really from the Lufthansa heist and the aftermath of it onward, you realize we are not in a Godfather movie. This is not the 70s and this is not Francis Ford Coppola. This is a very different commentary on this. And Martin Scorsese trying to do something much more complicated in terms of the kind of conscience of it all. So not to give too much away in Goodfellas, if you haven't seen it, you absolutely must. But the latter half of Goodfellas is really uh, showing you why this life maybe is not the best decision if you would like to be a happy person. Um, and that's kind of <laughs> the twist of the heist on them. So that is my choice in heist. And of course, it features one of the greatest continuous shots of all yeah, time. Yeah, Copacabana scene, right? So it's the, I think that was the longest tracking shot in history at that point. And something beat it since then, I believe, but I can't remember what it is. But no, phenomenal, phenomenal film. And of course, uh, the um, the role of Ray Liotta's wife, uh, the main character, Henry Hill's wife, Karen, is played by Lorraine Bracco, who would go on in another sort of uh, complicated look at mafia life to play the psychiatrist, the counselor on The Sopranos. All right, enough about Goodfellas. Pat Smith with two picks. All right, um, I'm, I'm going to announce one and then the next one rather than doing both of them. Uh, the first one will be under costume drama. I'm going to go with Alexander Quartz, 1933, The Private Life of Henry VIII. Uh, starring Charles Lawton. Uh, I think probably one of the very early uh, archetypal costume dramas. Great cast. Uh, and to Amanda's point, probably one of the most immersive uh, movies you can watch in general. 
Lawton is not playing Henry VIII. He is Henry VIII. Um, but by the same token, there's the great scene with uh, Elsa Lanchester's Anne of Cleves and Charles Lawton playing cards on her bed, and she's rooking him for all uh, intents and purposes. Um, and I think it's, uh, I mean, everyone knows the story, the Henry VIII's wives were not a particularly lucky bunch. It begins with the great Merle Oberon as um, Anne Boleyn. But um, just a, a another good example of a movie that's closer to 100 years now old um, being in, in many ways very modern and very fresh. I've never seen that movie. But uh, you've made me want to. I never have either, unfortunately. It's on my list now. Yeah, I will add it to the watch list on Letterboxd. All right. Then I'm going to choose a Catholic movie and following in Potter's footsteps. Uh, the Song of Bernadette, 1943, uh, directed by Henry King, starring Jennifer Jones as the titular saint, uh, including a cast that... Um, Featured Vincent Price as the skeptical prosecutor who's turned uh, believer uh, at the end of the movie. Um, it's kind of hard to describe it. I mean, everyone sort of knows the story there, too. If you're, if you're Catholic, you've probably seen it. It's um, probably on the top of, if not the top, uh, of everyone's list of quote-unquote Catholic movies, but I think it's it's a very well-done movie that does not approach it in the very modern way of playing will I or won't I about it. Um, you know, did it happen or did it not? Which, I don't need that in a, a Catholic movie. I can watch all sorts of secular movies if I want that perspective. Um and it's, it's a well-made movie. Uh, Jennifer Jones' performance is fantastic. Can't say enough about that. Yeah, it's back when Catholic movies were not uh, necessarily as cringe-inducing as they might be in more recent years. But no, it's a phenomenal film. Yeah, she, she is just a vision. You really feel like you're watching St. Bernadette. She's just incredible. All right. We're back to me, I guess. Um so I think I'm going to go ahead and choose in rom-com. And this is one of the movies that I alluded to earlier um, that really set rom-coms on their kind of contemporary uh, trajectory. So this is a 1989 film uh, written by Nora Ephron, but directed by Rob Reiner. And of course, I'm talking about When Harry Met Sally. And one of the things I love about this movie is that it's not really a chick flick, even though it's very much a rom-com, but it's an interesting romantic comedy in that it's pretty evenly set between the male character played by Billy Crystal and the female character played by Meg Ryan. You spend about equal time with each. And at least my sort of sense of the thing is that you get a pretty even balance of um, the kind of male and female temperaments in the way the story is told. Uh, I love this movie. It is hilarious. It is maybe my favorite movie for casting New York City as a character in the film. Um, and the other thing about it that I think is near and dear to the hearts of everyone here, whether you like rom-coms or not, is this is the movie that really made Seinfeld possible. 
I don't know if you know this story, but Seinfeld had gotten pitched the year before and turned down. I think Ju- Julia Louis-Dreyfus wasn't yet part of the project, so that may have something to do with it too. But it was turned down at the time because the question was, well, who's going to pay money or spend time just watching people talk in a room? And then when Harry Met Sally came along and was this huge box office sensation, and so they revisited the Seinfeld pitch and said, okay, we'll give this a try. And I think that kind of set our 90s sitcoms that we grew up on, uh, on the kind of platform they had to do what they wanted to do. So when Harry Met Sally. Brilliant movie. Completely hilarious. Also gives us, of course, the... The great question, can men and women just be friends? And the great answer, nope. At least not in that sense. Not in the exclusive one-on-one, we'll be everything to each other, but nothing more than that. Turns out, not a recipe for success in a friendship. All right, back to Amanda. Okay, so I am going to do a bit of a tone shift here, and I'm going to pick my... Catholic movie. This was actually the most difficult category for me just because it's so broad. Um, And I, so I thought about it more. I thought about a Catholic film, a film that makes you pray, a film that makes you realize how helpless we are um, without God. And that even though we are imperfect and sinful, the church and her sacraments work anyway. And that is how I got back to my selection, which is The Exorcist. Um, And, um, I will admit straight away, I have seen this movie once and once is uh, the total amount of times I'm going to see it. It's a very (laughs) scary movie, perhaps the scariest movie ever made. Um, And but what really made me put this movie here is because it was made in a very particular time in the history of the church, um, the early 70s. And it's sort of a period, I think, and you all um, might agree that we seem to be contemned to repeat at the moment. and, uh, you know, the movie has its cast of priests. I think actually one of them is played by actual Jesuit, um, Father William O'Malley. And, um, you know, we have our old priest who is sort of this archaeologist reaching into the past to combat evil. And, of course, we have our young priest, Father Karras, who is young. He's a man of the, his times. He's weakened by doubt. Um, but they both are priests. They both have consecrated hands, uh, whether Karras believes it or not. And the movie, even though it was written, I think Blatty was was lapsed at that point in his in his life, um, and directed by William Friedkin, who is who's Jewish, uh, it has a terrifyingly simple message: if you uh, let the forces of evil into your life, the only hope really comes in the form of a it could be a very fallible priest of the church. Um, and that message in particular sort of resonated with me today. Um, in your time of need, you don't know who's going to show up, but the sacraments work and God's grace is good. And that's sort of what I take away from this film, even though it's kind of turned into a um, an unfortunate kind of Holly Halloween, you know, trope. And uh, you kind of fail to see the real humanity and, and, um, tragedy of this poor the poor girl the victim of this film so that's that is my choice um for catholic film when the walls start bleeding you don't want a presbyterian exactly and i think (laughs) that and then the movie i think was based or the novel rather was based on a real life allegedly a real life case of a child who was possessed and i think who was raised Lutheran. And I think the story goes that the Lutheran pastor said, you need a Catholic priest for this sort of thing, buddy. 
Um, so yeah, that, uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of where I came from with this one. And it happened in St. Louis, Missouri. That's right. The original case did. The movie of course is filmed at Georgetown. Um, and the man who was my spiritual director for several years was actually an exorcist at Georgetown, uh, not a Jesuit, as he would be very quick to remind you that you were in a Jesuit free zone. Everything was safe. Um, but he said he loved this film. He loved that it depicted the reality of all of this for such a wide audience. Uh, we won't spoil the end of the movie here, but just to say the two things that he said were inaccurate to the source material and are inaccurate for what an exorcist does or ought to do happen right at the end of the movie. So the way it actually resolves um, is unfortunately not a great example of this, but the entire rest of the film is just stunningly Catholic, sometimes even despite the the people involved. I remember also hearing an interview not too long ago with the director of that film, William Friedkin, who I had never realized and would never have guessed is actually a big historical Jesus, like Jesus seminar freak um but anyway at least he can still make what? great catholic art by by accident so <laughs> that's yeah. bizarre that is bizarre. i think there's a there's a cameo there's a cameo in the film by i think a jesuit i forget his name who was uh william peter blatty's spiritual director or teacher at georgetown and he said after he that film even though he had a cameo he had people from all walks of life coming to him and asking him to pray for them or wow. asking them to like you know people of no faith, people of all different faith backgrounds ask, you know, asking for a blessing, asking, you know, talking about people they know who they thought were possessed. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of, there's a lot of issues with that, but it's, you know, that's kind of why I, I chose it is that really nothing gets you <laughs> praying like a movie that kind of scares you straight like this one. Um, you know, and, and the, and the victim here is just a girl who played with, what is marketed to children as a board game by Hasbro right. with her mother. Right. Um, you know, it's a Ouija board and uh, that's, that is almost the scariest part of it. Yep. The scariest part is when you see the priest, Father Karras wearing an LL Bean sort of style outfit. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> All right, Marlo, second pick. <laughs> All right. I am going to go with my heist pick and I'm just going to be a dark horse candidate, but it is a movie that I happen to enjoy. And it's a bit of a variation on the heist theme. It's a war heist. The film is Kelly's heroes starring Clint Eastwood, Telly Savalas and Donald Sutherland featuring, uh, also featuring Carol O'Connor and the guy who played uncle Leo on Seinfeld. But it is a war film, takes place in World War II. It's set in Italy. Clint Eastwood was uh, some higher rank and got busted down for being, I don't know, Clint Eastwood. And they find out that there is a store of gold held in a bank. And so they decide that they're fed up with the whole uh, hierarchy of the armed forces and being annoyed. And so they all go off and decide to steal themselves some gold. And hijinks ensue. You have, of course, Donald Sutherland playing a goofy character as Donald Sutherland can. Telly Savalas is Telly Savalas, and Clint Eastwood is Clint Eastwood. And then, uh, and you feature, of course, all sorts of good battle things happening as well. World War II tanks. I think it's filmed in scenic Yugoslavia. 
And at the end, be sure not to miss a delightful homage to Clint's uh, Spaghetti Westerns, where we have a showdown with a tiger tank, but in the spaghetti style with spaghetti music. So Pat picked a movie I haven't seen in The Private Life of Henry VIII. Marlowe has just picked a movie that I am ashamed to admit I've never heard of. I'm excited to check this out now. That was a great pitch. It is a delightful film of that sort of uh, late 60s World War II model. And you can get you can get a bit of feel. It's influence, of course, uh, towards the anti-war uh, movement of the time and generally of the 60s of sort of you know, giving the, the nose to authority and we'll go off and steal some Nazi gold, you know, as all those hippies did. As one does. All right, Potter Edmonds, we're back to you and you'll have two draft picks in a row right now. Okay. So I will go with heist first as well, following in Marlowe's footsteps here. And my choice for heist is heat 1995 Directed by Great Michael choice. Mann, starring Al Pacino and Robert De Niro and Val Kilmer. Amazing movie. Um, my my older brother showed me this movie when I was pretty young, and I was just uh, astonished and terrified by it. The 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 first robbery uh, where they take down a, a a cash truck by crashing a semi truck into it, and then blowing a hole into it with a bomb. It just seems so real when you hear that that crash and then the explosion and you see a pressure wave breaking the windows on all the cars nearby. It's just so cool. Yeah, it's got to be one of the best heist movies of all time. Um, it's what I had in mind when I said budget concerns about being able to actually show the heist in a movie. Heat is the ultimate example of Michael Mann had all the budget he wanted. He shut down LA for a day and has Robert De Niro firing a machine gun through downtown Los Angeles. This is something you yeah. just don't get these days. Incredible. And I think, is it true that this is the first time other than the Godfather part two, where of course, Robert De Niro and Al Pacino are on totally different timelines. Is this the first movie where they actually, these two actors who've played very similar roles for, decades at that point come together and get to face off against each other is incredible. Yes. Yes. It's the first time. And there's that amazing scene in the diner where they, yeah, they talk to each other, the, the cop and the robber the cop who's telling the robber invites him to coffee. Amazing scene. And as I recall, that was just them saying, we have Robert De Niro and Al Pacino. We need to, we need to have them in a scene together. <laughs> cause there was, there was before that there was like, there was no place in the script, I think, as I recall. And they're like, we gotta come up with something. Yeah. And Robert De Niro in that movie, he has kind of a, a sort of perverse version of Ignatian spirituality. You know, he's indifferent to everything. <laughs> you know, be ready everything to walk as soon as you exactly. feel the heat around the corner. <laughs> yeah. It's a paraphrase of the first principle and foundation of the spiritual exercises. <laughs> exactly. All right. Back to you for another pick, Potter. All right. Um, Okay, I will go with. Uh, I'm gonna go with rom com, um, and this is a hard a hard decision because uh, there were two that there are two that I like almost equally well, 
Um, but the one that I decided to go with eventually after much internal struggle is You've Got Mail, 1998. Uh, similar to the to your pick, Urban, Nora Ephron is also involved, not only writing, but also directing in this case, starring Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. Meg Ryan is reading Pride and Prejudice. It's all very obvious and perfect. <laughs> Tom Hanks, as you, you referred to earlier as well, he he puts her out of business. She's a, a bookstore owner. He owns the sort of Barnes and Noble type place and takes her out. But eventually they fall in love. They know That's, each other online under pseudonyms. And then it turns out, then they find out who they are in real life. Yeah, there's parts of that movie that still work like perfectly well. The like anonymous online thing, of course, uh, ends up playing into 2022 just fine. The Barnes and Noble as the unstoppable force putting everyone out of business does not look quite the same in the age of Amazon. But right. Does not uh, strike against the movie at all. Such a good film. Maybe the ultimate Upper West Side movie, in my opinion. And that the cafe where they go, Cafe Lalo, was a huge favorite spot of anyone that ever visited me in New York. They always wanted to go to the You've Got Mail cafe there, which has some of the best cheesecake in town. So recommended. Excellent. Well, I didn't realize that was the same that was in the movie. Yep, that's where come. I think. How does where it she work? Waits She's for waiting him. for him, yeah. and then he shows. Yeah, he shows he, up and realizes it's her. He's got his friend with him. It's great. Got it. All right, Marlo, back around to you. All righty then. <clears throat> I am going to go and I'm going to enter into the musical world. First one to take in that category. And I'm going to go with my favorite musical because it has a sad ending. And that is Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah. Which is definitely <laughs> a movie that... I guess in a certain sense could have also gone in the Catholic category, depending on how you look at it. Quite. As one deals with the interplay of tradition and the modern world and evil Russians. <laughs> <laughs> and, Very but Catholic as I said, theme. Yeah. But as I say, it is my favorite musical. And I have to say it is because it has a certain uh, gravitas that I think musicals often do not have. Uh, particularly of the, I guess, Rodgers and Hammerstein variety. And I suppose I have a personal attachment, having been in it myself back when I was in high school, so I enjoyed being in it tremendously. Who'd you and play? The music, I played Tevya. Yeah. Are there any uh, recordings of this that survived that we might be able to edit into this podcast? Uh, there's pictures, but I don't. I, I do not have any recordings. Dead. of me not so a visual sorry. medium unfortunately cool cool that's phenomenal <laughs> but so i will go with fiddler on the roof um topol of course basically is tevya i don't know if he was ever in anything else and uh, the music is really fantastic catchy songs uh, can't go wrong with fiddler on the roof solid choice to amanda Okay, I think I will also do my musical, um, and that is An American in Paris, um, which was the great um, 1951 movie that's actually, so it's a musical, but it was not based on a Broadway play. It was based on 
1928 orchestral composition by George Gershwin. So it's a little bit unique from other movie musicals of that era. Um, it's very dance focused. Um, obviously, your lead is Gene Kelly. So it's going to have to be. Uh, has sort of a 17 minute surreal ballet sequence at the climax of the film, which I, I watched the original trailer and it, it was hailed as the greatest dance entertainment ever projected on the screen. I, I think they're absolutely right. Um, there is sort of a 20 year age gap between Gene Kelly and the romantic lead, Leslie Caron, uh, which when they're not dancing, it kind of strains your uh, um, you know ability to disbelief. But uh, when they're dancing, they're awesome. It's it's just a beautiful beautiful movie, and it's and it's extremely poignant um, when you think about the fact that um, it's taking place only a few years after World War II. Um, you sort of get the sense that you're this is like the first sunny day after a week of rain when you're watching the movie. You know, everyone is filled with optimism and exuberance. Gene Kelly plays an ex-GI who comes back to Europe to be an artist. Um, you have uh, the French. Uh, actor and um, uh, singer Georges Guettari singing I'll Build a Stairway to Paradise. There's a song about heaven right there. It's just wonderful. It, it's so optimistic. It's so beautiful. Um, and, but it's still poignant um, because you, you understand what people have gone through. And um, they actually eventually did make this into a Broadway musical, I think around 2014. And the musical really, really played into this scars of world war ii angle um which i thought was not it was kind of a mixed success like i I would have preferred it a little less sort of over all these characters were given these backstories of what they were doing in the war but which i think is kind of unnecessary to the plot but but it does add in the original movie a nice level of poignancy and i think audiences you you know wouldn't have needed to be hit over the head with the fact that world war ii just happened because it was 1951 um so fantastic movie uh wonder really beautiful musical I also saw the stage musical version of this when they made it a few years ago, and I couldn't agree with you more. I don't think it worked nearly as well. Yes. Dancing, beautiful sets, beautiful, but, you know, just, you know, maybe X and A on the, you know, war stories here. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. All right. Well, I'm actually going to keep us in the domain of World War II for a second here, and I'm going to go ahead and choose in costume drama. And... I will be taking Inglorious Bastards by Quentin Tarantino. Um, so this is my favorite of Tarantino's films. Uh, he's at nine right now, at least as he counts them and claims he's only making 10. Um, and I wouldn't say that Tarantino is necessarily my guy across the board, though I think he's an extremely talented director. But Inglorious Bastards really, really works for me. So this film originally, the whole time I think it was in production, uh, it was working under the title Once Upon a Time in Nazi-Occupied France, um, came out in 2009, and is just a phenomenal story told across several very discreet acts, very discreet scenes. Um, It's sort of set like a play. It was our first introduction to Christoph Waltz, who was just this kind of miracle find for him, someone who could speak in all these different languages and just had exactly the right um, sort of affectation to be this horrendous Nazi villain, um, just a villain who is so perfectly hateable. Um, and I think he works great. I think Shoshana is the most successful female character that Tarantino's ever written and just an incredibly compelling part of this movie. 
Um, but my favorite scene in the whole movie, that's actually my favorite scene of this century, I think, is the bar scene underground uh, with Michael Fassbender and Diane Kruger and these various military soldiers and the sort of giveaway of this undercover plot to overthrow Hitler and the Nazis um, that happens in that bar. It's not a very long scene. I think it's less than 15 minutes, but is the best Fassbender I've ever seen. And he's one of my favorite actors with one of the worst, weirdest IMDb's ever. But this particular role for him, even though it was short-lived, he just has two scenes, um, is just incredible. So I love this movie. I think it's You, you rank really... this above Pulp Fiction. Yeah, so I do. I think Pulp Fiction is also... I mean, what can you say against Pulp Fiction? It obviously should have won the Oscar. It's just so perfect. It's, it's a perfect film in so many ways. But I think there's just more for me uh, in a reappraisal of the conclusion of World War II and the totalitarian Nazi regime than there is for me uh, in the sort of Los Angeles uh, evaluation going on in Pulp Fiction. So I, I love enough. Pulp. It's great. But... I return to this one a lot more. All right, Pat Smith. Pat, why don't you go ahead and pick whatever your first choice is uh, for this turn, and then I'll do a quick recap just to share where everyone's at. Uh, oh, so now then... the two turns are getting split up. This isn't so fair now. Um, <laughs> you still get them back to back. No, I'm going to make my rom-com pick with It Happened One Night, 1934, Frank Capra, uh, starring Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert. In, in many ways, I think it's probably unfairly considered predominantly a screwball comedy. It, it's, it's a rom-com. Um, Claudette Colbert plays the heiress who's trying to get away from her father, played by the uh, fantastic character actor uh, Walter Connolly. Um, she flees. Uh, Clark Gable's a sort of Clark Gable newspaper reporter he finds her he's gonna make the the great scoop when he uh when he reveals that uh he's he's found the missing heiress um they're thrown into some close circumstances they dislike each other they come to like each other um uh, maybe my favorite scene uh, sort of emotional payoff is when clark gable uh goes to meet with uh, Walter Connolly, Claudette Colbert's father. And um, Cl the father thinks he's come to claim the reward. And all he wants is $39.60 for his out-of-pocket expenses bringing her back. And the father realizes he's in love with her. Um, great movie. Uh, very light touch, um, as, as Capra often had. Um, but fantastic rom-com. Yeah, not only is it a rom-com, I would go so far as to say it's the rom-com. It's the movie I was alluding to uh, when we were first chatting about rom-coms at the beginning, the 1934 film that I think really invented this genre as a genre of film um, and in many ways unsurpassed. So great choice. Okay, so I'm going to recap for us real quick. So currently in costume drama, I have Inglorious Bastards and Pat has The Private Life of Henry VIII. In rom-com, we've all picked now. So Potter Edmund has You've Got Mail. Marlo has Midnight in Paris. Amanda has Clueless. I have When Harry Met Sally. And Pat has It Happened One Night. In Heist, Potter Edmund has Heat. Marlo has Kelly's Heroes. And I have Goodfellas. 
in silent or musical. We're still waiting on a silent film. Uh, but Marlo has Fiddler on the Roof and Amanda has An American in Paris. In Esoterically Catholic, Potter Edmund has The Godfather, Amanda has The Exorcist, and Sweet Pat Smith has The Song of Bernadette. Uh, actually, I would say those are not very esoterically Catholic. Those are all, at least in kind of uh, surface themes, very straightforwardly Catholic. So no one has their wild card yet, and that is halfway through our draft. So we will keep things moving. Pat Smith, next choice. Well, you mentioned that um, we haven't picked a silent film yet. So I'm going to go ahead and take my silent choice. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock's 1927 uh, British movie, The Lodger, A Story of the London Fog, starring uh, Marie Holt, Arthur Chesnerny, and um, Ivor Novello as The Lodger. Um, it's probably the first Hitchcock movie that's recognizably a Hitchcock movie, um, arguably. Um I won't give away too much of the plot, uh, but I will say it's sort of around a Jack the Ripper kind of figure. Um, I think frequently it's it's claimed that it's a it's a movie about Jack the Ripper. I'm not sure that I buy that it's about him uh, so much as it's sort of inspired by that sort of thing. Um, it's themes Hitchcock will come back to, um, particularly, well, again, I don't want to give away the, the whole thing, um, but I think if you watch Shadow of a Doubt and then watch The Lodger, you'll see that some things are in the back of Hitchcock's mind, even over the course of years there. Um, so that would be my silent pick. I, w I was going to pick The Passion of Joan of Arc, uh, which is, of course, I think probably the universal best silent movie. But I didn't want to, while I think uh, category discipline is liberalism, and I do not believe <laughs> in separating categories as a, as a matter of principle, I do think it's probably best to, to keep the Catholic movies Catholic, and I've already picked The Song of Bernadette. So The Lodger is my choice. That's great. I have not seen The Lodger, but where I've been staying, I'm on a vacation with my parents right now. And where I've been staying, we have a free showtime with a whole Alfred Hitchcock collection. So I've watched both Rope and Vertigo this week, which are both just unbelievable films. Vertigo, obviously, much better than Rope. Um, but that's been a fun way to put myself to bed at night to spend in some time with Alfred Hitchcock and have some I, 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 very scary dreams. Everyone's <laughs> going to say Vertigo is better than Rope. I think rope in terms of a bunch of actors chewing the scenery and having a lot of fun with a story that maybe doesn't have a lot of legs. Um, it's hard to beat rope. Plus it has all those 10 minute takes. Yeah, exactly. And the weird like, camera inspired. moving into someone's jacket so that they can cut without showing that they're cutting. <laughs> and it inspired an episode of the X-Files. Well, there we go. All right. We're back to me. Um, I think I'm going to go ahead and pick my Catholic movie. And in terms of a recent movie, a relatively recent movie, this is about the best I can do for something that is staying pretty close to the kind of um, Catholic principle of the category. I'm going to take Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life. So nice. 
This is uh, my favorite of Malick's movies. It is, I think, the most Malick of Malick's movies. It's sort of Malick unfiltered. Yeah. Um, it, if you haven't seen it, it's very difficult to explain this movie. Um, it's sort of not even a narrative in certain ways, I think. It's very much Malick's kind of what I call his mosaic of moments um, sort of style of telling a story. But... I will say, so I was working for the Archdiocese of New York when this movie came out, which I think was in 2010 or sometime around there, 2011. And my boss and I weirdly got invited to the New York premiere of this movie because they wanted to market it to all these Catholics. So I end up at this hotel in Soho for this private screening premiere thing of this movie. Several of the first things editors are seated behind us. But my boss, God bless him, had just had surgery on his hand that day. And so he had come right from surgery to uh, the movie. And when you get the cutaway scene to the creation of the world and these kind of wild explorations of the coming to be of dinosaurs, which is something that happens in this otherwise like 1950s set story about uh, quiet little family drama, which, okay. Uh, My boss was so ill watching this creation of the world thing that he left the theater went out into the lobby and promptly lost his lunch in this nice soho hotel lobby which (laughs) i didn't even notice because i was so absorbed by this film that i did not realize he was gone until the movie ended um but this movie is just incredible brad pitt and jessica chastain doing unbelievable work and i love just kind of how iconographic this movie is there's a really interesting scene in this movie or kind of sequence in this movie that is very much about a young boy um, sort of coming through adolescence and having to wrestle with temptations against the sixth commandment for the first time. But the way they portray that is so um, symbolic in a way that I think is really perfect because it doesn't show anything it shouldn't show, but you understand exactly what's going on and you get this weird, um, sort of symbology of temptation without actually letting anything that is crass enter into the beauty of Malick's film here. So highly recommend Tree of Life. Yeah, it's a great film. For We have this Studium Generale um, in Heiligenkreuz, which is a one-year sort of general studies program. And we do various activities with the students as well as the classes. And one of the things we do is a movie night, and I show them this movie. This is the one. It's great. It might be the number one example for me of a movie that you must see in a theater, like on a big screen. This is a movie that will not work on your iPhone. Yeah. All right. Um, To Amanda, next choice. Okay. Um, I think I am going to do my costume drama. And I thought I was being edgy with my costume drama choice, but since Urban chose Inglorious Bastards, this is this is <laughs> this is I think much more in uh, keeping with the stereotype of the genre, and and that is a Dangerous Liaisons, um, Stephen Frears' nineteen eighty eight movie. Um, it's actually based on a play, which is based on the seventeen eighty two novel, and um, you know this is sort of the really puts the costume in costume drama. The costumes in this movie are spectacular. I think widely considered some of the best historical accurate, historically accurate costuming, but the costumes also are deployed in a way that perfectly enhances the storytelling 
the first scene of the film, um, the two characters, you have Glenn Close's character, um, the Marquise de Motoy, pardon my butchered French, and the Vicomte de Valmont, which played by John Malkovich. Um, their characters are French aristocrats of the Ancien Regime, and they are getting ready. It shows their morning routine, uh, you know, accompanied by at least six servants, um, and they are getting their beautiful, beautiful clothes on. It's sort of, you know, ma- putting on their armor ready to, you know, ruin people's lives. Um, it's it's a stunningly beautiful film, but it is not really escapism in the sense that you can snuggle up with a cup of tea and watch, you know, watch a nice uh, costume drama. It is, it's a very difficult film to watch. The characters are really, um, you know, very wicked people, but they're played with such complexity by Glenn Close and John Malkovich. Um, you know, neither actor, I, I don't think they would be considered necessarily classically handsome or beautiful, but they are just so engaging in this movie. They're, they almost have their own gravitational pull. And, uh, you know, when the movie shifts away from them, you kind of feel the emptiness in the room when they leave. Um, and so, you know, if the film has a fault, it's be, it's there's too much chewing of scenery between John Malkovich and Glenn Close. But it's a you know, it's a strength and a weakness. So it depends on your tolerance for that. But definitely shows it was it was based on a play, which was based on an epistolary novel. But I mean, just really, really a great, great movie. Um, also warning, there is a young Keanu Reeves playing a period character. He, I think he does a little <laughs> bit better than he does in Coppola's Dracula. Um, they don't, they don't give, they don't give anybody terrible British accents in this movie. Everyone's American and they speak American English. <laughs> so you're sort of spared the Keanu Reeves doing a British accent thing, but uh, he's fine. He's fine. Michelle Pfeiffer's good. Uh, there's young Uma Thurman who's very good. Um, so I would definitely put this on your list. If you, you love costumes, you love the 18th century, and you want to feel better about yourself. <laughs> How does Glenn Close not have an Oscar? This is my question with regard she, to Dangerous Liaisons. Yeah. She was so good in that movie. So, so good. Um, it's hard to describe unless you've really seen it. Um, you know, John Malkovich is John Malkovich. Um, he's Always does his thing. And he does, does a great job. Um, he's basically the same, I think, character he plays in the Annie Lennox walking on broken glass video. I think she wanted him to reprise his role. Um, so yeah, it, it, you know, Glenn Close is just, I think she's really the, the you know, the, the perfect center of this movie. Um, I just looked great. this up. So she, this is absolutely awful, but she holds the uh, record for most times nominated for an Oscar. She's been nominated for an Academy Award eight times without ever winning. And she, wow. the only person she's tied with in that is Peter O'Toole. So there you go. Wow. Uh, great recommendation. Far better than the uh, modern remake adaptation of that Cruel Intentions with Buffy the Vampire Slayer a few years later. Right. Yeah, I I have not actually seen that. So I'm, I'm just, just... I would oh, spare yourself oh, also- would be my personal advice on that. There's actually, um, I think there was another 90s movie made that was an adaptation of Dangerous Liaisons at the same time. I think it's called Valmont with Colin Firth. Hmm. And um, I have not seen that either, but it, they definitely seem to be trading on the Colin Firth and Pride and Prejudice route. But like he plays a, Valmont, who is a terrible character. <laughs> he is not Mr. Darcy. Uh, so I feel like there are a lot of very sad Pride and Prejudice fans watching that movie in the 90s thinking they were getting Mr. Darcy and getting this very terrible dark character who you would not want to have as your boyfriend. 
all kinds of psychological damage being done to too many young girls in the 90s. Um, yeah. All right. Are we to Marlo? Yeah, I think so. Marlo, your fourth pick. All right. I'm going to see for costume drama, I am going to go for the 1964 film Zulu, starring nice. Michael Caine in one of his first roles. And also unusual, it features him speaking with a posh upper class accent. Uh, but starring Michael Caine, Stanley Baker, it is a retelling based on a real story, the telling retelling of the Battle of Rourke's Drift, in which a couple hundred British soldiers decked out in their decked out in their uh, red uniforms with their breech-loading rifles take on several thousand Zulus, and uh, features, of course, the tremendous climatic scene since they're a Welsh regiment, them singing "Men of Harlech" to counter the Zulu battle cry and a delightful film. That's my choice. Fantastic. All right. Potter Edmund. Okay. I am going to go with silent and my pick is uh, Charlie Chaplin's 1925 film, the gold rush. Yes. Um, Absolutely perfect film. Um, which I saw in two different versions when I was little because both sets of my grandparents had it, but my American grandparents had the original 1925 version. Um, but Chaplin then did a later version with uh, music and narration, um, which was later dubbed into German. And my Austrian grandparents had that version. So <laughs> I'm, I'm familiar with both versions, but in both it's, it's perfect. I think silent movies, um, they're very, they're very suitable to comedy uh, because comedy is very physical, uh, less cerebral than drama usually. It has a lot to do with the body. Um, and that's all there is in silent movies. And you get this, um, Georgia Hale in, in The Gold Rush has just the, the most beautiful histrionic uh, lady rejecting a man. <laughs> gestures <laughs> that have ever been done. And Charlie Chaplin's dance with the bread rolls is one of the great scenes in cinema history <laughs> where he, he sticks two forks into two rolls so that they look like shoes and legs. And then he dances uh, with them <laughs> below his head. It's just unbelievably perfect. Yeah. It's pathetically one of the only Chaplin's I've seen, but it is, a delightful movie. There was a time when I was in religious life, our novice master brought us up to the mountains, all the seminarians for a week and decided we all, we would always do a movie every night, but he decided that year we're going to do classic movies because it's pathetic that y'all haven't seen these. And this was our one chaplain uh, adventure of the week and so much fun. All right, we are back around to Marlow. We are. Doesn't Potter get two? Oh, oh yeah. you're right. Uh, a good two. procedural correction. Thank you much. Very Potter, good. You again. Yes, me again. Okay. Um, I will go then with costume drama. And I am going to, because my favorite costume drama is not eligible, namely the 1995 Pride and Prejudice miniseries, I'm going to go with something completely different, namely... <laughs> Werner Herzog's 1972 film Agire der Zorn Gottes, 
um, which is an insane film. It's uh, it's about a, a conquistador trying to find El Dorado on the Amazon or a group of conquistadors. There's some slightly sort of black legendish stuff in it, but you can overlook that just for the um, unbelievably good filmmaking and the maniacal, insane performance by Klaus Kinski as uh, Lope de Aguirre, the main conquistador there. Um, one of the most amazing performances by an actor in a film I've ever seen. Really, it's, it's Kinski playing against the jungle, these two titanic forces running at each other at full speed. Yeah. There's a fantastic documentary that Herzog later made about Kinski called My Dearest Enemy. Um, and he talks about the fact that Kinski was, was terribly, terrible to work with because he was he, he was always going on these insane rants and, and uh, making all kinds of trouble. But some of the, the, um, the native Amazonians who are also working on the film there from some tribe in Amazonia, they approached Herzog and offered to, to kill Kinski because, <laughs> but uh, Herzog turned them down. <laughs> All right, Marlo. Now I think we are actually back to you. <clears throat> All right. So I will pick my Catholic movie and I'm going to play it safe. I'm going to go with the 1966 classic film, A Man for All Seasons, of course, featuring such great actors as Paul Schofield, Robert Shaw, Orson Welles, and uh, John Hurt, and Leo McKern, also perhaps more famous for playing Rumpole of the Bailey. But of course, A Man for All Seasons, acting toward a force, telling the story of St. Thomas More and his interaction with Henry VIII. So I guess this is the second appearance by Henry VIII in our film choices. But if you haven't seen it, go out to your local blockbuster and <laughs> rent it. <laughs> This was going to be my choice for costume drama if Amanda had shot me down on Inglorious Bastards. No, I, ah. I love A Man for All Seasons. Uh, obviously, there's things that we can say about the way oh, that Thomas oh. More's history was sort of manipulated here. Yes, Pat is chomping at the bit. I'll let him do this. But uh, besides those things that I will let Pat raise concerns about in just a second, just as a film, I think this is such an incredible achievement and especially those closing scenes i actually think this might be my favorite courtroom drama of all time which is not the genre in which we normally think of it but the speech that Moore makes at the end is just one of the best scenes in hollywood history okay pat tell I, us why i we think, should hate a man for all seasons <laughs> no, I, I think you should like it as a movie because it is such a good movie it has completely erased the historical thomas Moore. um Due to A Man for All Seasons, I think most people have a sense of Moore as this martyr for the rights of conscience and, you know, he, he can't be convinced and not even uh, his friends, not even his king can violate his conscience. Okay, fine. That's a great story. It's obviously about the communists. But uh, what it is, it, it, is it's a misrepresentation of what Moore actually died for. Moore throughout his career as chancellor and even before being chancellor 
was an ardent defender of the rights of the Roman Church. He was an ardent defender of the procedures of the Roman Church, um, even some procedures that today are awfully controversial. And I think it does a real disservice to Moore to, to turn all of that into, well, he really believed in conscience. I'm sure he did really believe in conscience. He also really believed in the Roman Church. Uh, that's why I always have this beef with the movie. But it's a great movie. If it weren't so good of a movie, I don't think we'd have that conversation. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And when you compare Moore's actual writings that they've clearly grabbed things from to try to bring in some of that... Um, conscience material to the movie when you compare them to the primary sources more has some really really beautiful interesting things to say about conscience that i think we still have plenty to learn from um but it is not the tale of one man sort of defying all outside authority to just be true to his heart or something like this which is the uh sort of uh popular version that's the best that american audiences were probably going to be able to make of them the other thing i love about this movie is just it makes me love a saint. Like I really, really love St. Thomas More seeing Paul Schofield portray him. And you get to look at this character and say like, I should try to be like that um, and sort of conduct myself this way. Not necessarily the way some well-meaning middle-aged man in a trad mass one time told me that he wanted to found a men's group where they all wear the outfit that More is wearing in the famous painting <laughs> of him. I thought this was a bit of an odd recommendation, but nevertheless, the, uh, the Paul Schofield depiction there, I think is just so compelling. This is a guy, a man, a saint, uh, who I end up really, really admiring and wanting to emulate. All right, Amanda, we are on to you. Okay, so I think um, I'm going to do my heist movie, um, and the heist movie I chose was uh, called, it's called uh, Le Cercle Rouge, The Red Circle. Um, it's a 1970 French um, noir movie by Jean-Pierre Melville, and it stars uh, Alain Delon as a thief who is released from prison, and as uh, what often happens in this type of movie, almost immediately gets pulled back into a new job. Um, he joins forces with a suspected murderer, Vogel, and a former police marksman turned alcoholic Jensen, played by Yves Montaigne. And uh, there are a lot of movies, uh, French uh, noir crime heist movies made in the mid 20th century. And most of them follow a formula. Uh, you got your unspeakably cool guy, probably Ellen Delon in a trench coat. He gets out of prison. <laughs> he gets immediately roped into a new gig, becomes intertwined with underworld forces he can't control. And while the heist succeeds, things fall apart and he meets a tragic end. And while this movie more or less follows this formula, I, I think it's a little less bleak. And it, it really... What it does well and kind of uniquely, it doesn't show sort of your classic heist prep um, that we talked about earlier, um, but rather there's a lot of very um, sort of moody characterization, a lot of silence, um, a lot of uh, sort of just scenes of these three men together, and they form a camaraderie. They save each other's lives. Um, they sort of prove the old adage that there's no honor among thieves wrong, and um and though you don't really get like backstories for any of these guys, you really start believing in those relationships. And by the end of the movie, I was actually really surprised how much I cared about these men who, who really don't have, you know, they don't have monologues talking about their sob story or whatever. Uh, it's a key strength in the film. Um, you know, everything uh, you need to know is right in front of you. Um, and I think there's a really beautiful 
um, soundtrack that alternates between smooth jazz and complete silence. Hmm. Um, the heist itself um, is a the a, the Maubuisson, uh jewelry store in Place Vendôme, um, a very you know obviously uh, uh, famous French uh, flagship uh, jewelry store there, and it's done in complete silence. So you really are become your ears become attuned to the things that the protagonists are listening to. It, it, you know every bump, every click, every breath is startling. Um, you know, and the, the silence also kind of provides you, the viewer, a time to think. It's sort of a, a nice uh, moment of introspection. And I, I love strong soundtracks in a movie, but uh, this is sort of almost a, a nice little uh, balance to that. Um, so, you know, very cool movie, very stylish, very moody, lots of interesting themes about honor. Um, there's a whole, you know, sort of subplot about innocence and the innocence of men. So definitely worth a watch um, if you're interested in uh, sort of the French noir films of that era. I love that we're going to, Pat still hasn't picked his heist movie, so I won't uh, go too deep into this. But I love that it looks like we're going to finish heist without taking like the quintessential 21st century heist movie. But I think that was a great recommendation. Amanda, thanks very much. Um, okay, so I guess I'm going to go ahead and take my silent slash musical, and I'll be taking a musical. Um, I'm the last person to choose in this category. I actually don't know what I'm going to do here, so I'm going to talk through this a little. So there is a particular uh, old musical that I could pick just to kind of troll Potter Edmund here for a minute. Um, and I'm not going to pick that. That would be the sound of music. Uh, <laughs> Soul rotting slush. Yes, <laughs> you know. Potter uh, dismisses this. I've as never, I've never slush, seen this. But... I've never seen this musical. Uh, I've never Is seen that sound of right? music because my father uh, hated it so much he wouldn't let us see it. Oh, I'd forgotten <laughs> that part of the story. Oh, that's funny. I mean, okay. So your father is like a phenomenal, phenomenally elegant Austrian man. So I can completely appreciate that the sort of um, Hollywoodization um, of Salzburg and so forth in this movie would be very frustrating besides the kind of themes of the movie that uh, also we could raise certain questions about though. I do love that movie. I'm not going to pick it. Um, yeah, I guess I'm debating between whether to go old, uh, which is what everyone has done so far, both in the silent and in the musical um, options so far. And I, I understand why we would do that, because I agree with, I think it was Pat who said that musicals really showed Hollywood firing on all cylinders. Um, but even if they survived a bit longer than many other genres in old Hollywood, I feel like <laughs> the the bigger you are, the harder you fall. And musicals have fallen on just a terrible time these days. Um, so I think I'm actually going to choose a recent musical just to give an example of something that I think worked really, really well um, in a sort of surprising moment. So I'm going to choose last year's Steven Spielberg West Side Story. Um, I'm doing that in part because I think Steven Sondheim is the best musical theater composer who's ever lived, and he left this world this past year. Um, but also because I think this is just Spielberg showing that musicals can still be done well. Um, and done really well. So I, I don't want to enter into a debate about whether this is superior to the 
version 60 years prior uh, that, of course, took home many awards back in 1961. Um, I think it's something very different, but that was just shot incredibly well. Um, the So I think Romeo and Juliet is probably Shakespeare's least interesting play. And I end up not really caring about the romance at the center of West Side Story either, which is good because I don't really love uh, Ansel Elgort. Is that his name? who is our male romantic lead in this. But for me, this is a musical that is all about the side characters and what Ariana DeBose is bringing to Anita in that performance of America. What Mike Feist is bringing to Riff is just incredible. Uh, I actually thought he was the best part of the movie and got very little love for it afterward uh, in award season. And then Bernardo is also just incredibly... um, sort of electric the entire way through. I think all three of those side characters really knew their role really well. And what Spielberg does bringing Rita Moreno back, I thought was also just pitch perfect. So I will take the 2021 West Side Story in the hopes that Hollywood will try this sort of thing again and less of the Dear Evan Hansen debacle, which was the other musical moment of last year that even though I had seen that show on Broadway, I spent $6 or something renting the movie and got about 20 minutes in before I was in so much pain that I had to turn it off. So Hollywood, please more West side story, less year than Hanson. Thank you much. They're in that boardroom right now. Urban says he wants more of the West side story. <laughs> yes. I'm sure so many Hollywood execs are listening to the Josiah's podcast. <laughs> All right, Pat, you've got your last two choices right now. I going to say, it looks like I'm bringing this home. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and choose my heist. Uh, Stanley Kubrick's 1956, uh, The Killing, starring uh, Sterling Hayden as a particularly pensive criminal, um, as Sterling Hayden often was, uh, except perhaps in... Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove. Um, It's hard to talk about a heist movie without giving too much away. Um, But I will say it it is probably not the happy ending heist movie or indeed close to a happy ending uh, heist movie. It's it's pretty grim from beginning to end. Maybe you can say that's a bad thing. Maybe you can say that's a good thing. I like it, um, especially because it, shades into the noir uh category which we didn't have um hard bitten there's not a lot of romance not a lot of putting the team together fun um i wouldn't say it's a light movie to sit down and watch on a friday night although it does have the great alicia cook jr as one of the bit players who's such an off-kilter character actor he's great in almost everything you see him in uh precisely because he's just a little off uh, from what you would expect in a movie like that. For my final pick, my wild card, I'm going to go with Paul Schrader's 1985 Mishima Life in Four Chapters. Um, ostensibly a biopic about the Japanese author. Um, it's probably, well, I won't say probably, it's, I say it often enough, the most underrated movie of the 1980s. I don't think it's maybe the best movie of the 1980s. That's probably more competitive. I don't think it gets the attention it deserves. It's 
formally uh, brilliant movie um, shifting between two timelines and then shifting between sort of consensus reality and Mishima's books, including uh, Kyoko's House, which unless it has very recently been done, I don't think has been translated into English. Schrader had a private translation prepared so he could make the movie. Um, I don't think in 2022, the idea that you can get insight into an author's life and indeed his death from his books is a particularly mind-blowing insight, but it's hard to film. And I think Schrader films it pretty much ideally. Um, and it, it's a beautiful movie. Uh, I would say it, it returns to a lot of the themes Schrader's always thinking about, particularly if you watch Taxi Driver, which was written by Schrader, though directed by Martin Scorsese, and then Mishima back to back. You can see sort of some of Schrader's own anxieties being played out through these characters. Great movie. Great recommendation. You had just mentioned that movie to me recently, and I've already put it on my list of things to look up next, but that is putting it uh, even higher on the list. All right, I've got my last pick now, and I have yet to pick a movie by my favorite director, so we need to remedy that in my wildcard pick right now. So that would be David Fincher, and the movie I'm going to pick is the 2010 um, sort of origin story of social media, namely The Social Network. So this is a movie directed by David Fincher, who also gave us Fight Club and Gone Girl and Zodiac and just an incredible list of movies, um, by far my favorite director. Um, but what I love about The Social Network is that here he comes together with also probably the biggest name screenwriter um, today, uh, namely Aaron Sorkin, who also wrote uh, A Few Good Men and The West Wing and all of these things. And this movie is insane in terms of the dialogue. So I can't remember the stat, but it's something like the script to this movie is something like four times as long as a normal movie script for that length would be. And it's because every character in this movie is talking so unbelievably fast the entire time. It's Mark Zuckerberg and all of these Harvard kids just absolutely showing their intellectual chops by not shutting up and speaking a thousand miles a second. The opening scene in that Boston bar, uh, the scene between Jesse Eisenberg and Rooney Mara apparently went through 100 takes before David Fincher found something <laughs> he was happy with. So obviously this is a movie that takes some liberties with the founding of Facebook. Uh, it's not a documentary, it's not trying to be, but I think that what Sorkin and Fincher come together to say about the beginnings of a technology that has completely transformed our life, uh, is really, really something and rooting this all in human um, need for connection and for friendship. Um, and that's really where the movie is and goes. Um, and finally, just one last social media point. I was just chuckling to myself that I think the last time the five of us were together on a call like this was in that like 10 day period when we thought clubhouse was the way of the future. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting, the, uh, the social media trends that, have come in the intervening 12 years since this movie or the intervening uh, 15 to 20 years since Facebook was founded. Um, and yeah, I, I think this movie is incredible. Highly, highly recommended. And that's my last pick. Amanda. It does have the, or, sorry, it does have the problematic ahead. problem of, well, problematic problem. It does have the problem of 
twice as much army hammer and now that there are the you know the the allegations well without entering it's a lot of hammer (laughs) without entering into any of the allegations i will say that army hammer in this movie i think is so perfectly cast and this might be the best one guy play one actor playing twins uh example that we've seen since Lindsay lohan in the parent trap so i think this was a phenomenal army hammer All right, Amanda, your last pick. Okay, so my last pick is my wild card, as I think everybody's is right now. And and that is, um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't put a Wes Anderson movie on here because I love Wes Anderson. He's so great. So I have, of course, have to pick The Grand Budapest Hotel, which I don't think it's a stretch to say is his best um, I think only film I think he won Oscars for and totally, totally deserves it. So, you know, perfect confection of wit, color, excitement. You have, um, I think this movie is where Anderson has all of his sort of trademark elements and balance, um, you know, and I love all his movies, but some of them, you know, there's a little bit of too muchness. Um, you know, he's got his sprawling cast, the fantastical aesthetic, and they're all kind of, um, you know, doing their thing, you know, full cylinders, as we've said. Uh, everyone is just so great in this movie, but Ray Fiennes just towers above them all. Uh, it's no mistake if you watch the trailer for this movie, it's it's like 90% Ray Fiennes. He's just magnificent. Probably some of his best work as well, I would say. Um, and I think uh, Wes Anderson was inspired by the work of uh, Stefan Zweig for, um, for this movie, who is an Austrian author, of the 20th century. And I think he really connected well with the idea of melancholy in this movie is it's, it's a very sad movie, a uh, very tragic ending that you're not necessarily expecting from Wes Anderson. Um, you laugh, you cry. Uh, it's ultimately very tragic and, you know, and it's also kind of the story of the 20th century, really, especially in, in central and Eastern Europe, just, you know, a fantastic film. And if you, if you only watch one Wes Anderson, I would say this is it. It's a great recommendation. I think we all, all have of a mutual... films are perfect. It's hard to rank yeah. them. Yeah. Wes is great. We all have a mutual priest friend who lives in Paris who gets to spot Wes Anderson on the street from time to time, which makes me very jealous. <laughs> very all right. Marlo, your last pick. My last pick is the 1982 classic John Carpenter's The Thing, starring Kurt Russell Wilford Brimley, um, perhaps John Carpenter's best outing as director, telling the story of uh, the this base in research base in Antarctica that has an otherworldly uh, visitor, which features one of the perhaps best performances ever by an animal in a movie, namely the uh, the husky in the thing, and absolutely fantastic score by Ennio Morricone, although it's in the style of John Carpenter, but absolutely perfect for the film. The classic thong, 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 <laughs> and just perfectly captures the the desolation uh, of the the Antarctic. All the beautiful. Um, blues and uh, when you have like the they light up the flares and really fantastic visual work and just a a great 
uh, horror film. And of course, I can't, you have to mention the superb practical effects because they just do not make them like they used to. No CGI here. Not at all. Just miniatures and and actually making stuff, uh, some uh, stop motion uh, as well. Just lots of tricks. Yep. All right, Potter Edmund, bring us home. This is the last pick of the draft. Okay, for the last pick of the draft, I'm picking King Lear, the 1971 uh, King Lear directed by Peter Brook, starring Paul Schofield, who's already featured on this podcast. It's the film he made right after Man for All Seasons. Uh, I think it's even greater than Man for All Seasons, this film. Shakespeare is really difficult to adapt for the screen, I think, because he's such a theatrical writer. It's it's really hard to find the right uh, balance, the right tone, and so on. But this this film is amazing. It's it's shot in Denmark in Jutland in really bleak landscape in black and white. Um, it's cut it's cut quite it's quite pared down. He cut a lot of Shakespeare's uh, lines, um, sort of reducing the play to the bare bones. But it's just so riveting from start to finish. Unbelievable performance by Schofield, uh, and just. Um, an overpowering emotional experience, despite the fact that there's no music in this film. Um, film often uses music as a way of kind of making you feel the right emotions at the right time. Peter Brook doesn't use any music at all in this film. The, I think the clown sings a song at one point, but that's it. The rest of it is just a bleak landscape and incredible acting. That's awesome. And a great note to end on. Uh, so I'm just going to quickly recap everyone's choices so that we're all on the same page and then we'll explain how victory for this game works. Uh, yes, so, the important thing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> of course. Uh, in costume drama, Potter Edmund, oh shoot, I'm going to butcher the names of some of these. Is that Aguirre? Is that how I'm supposed to say that, Potter? I say Aguirre. Aguirre. Um, I love it. Yeah. Aguirre, the wrath of God. Um Marlowe has Zulu, Amanda has Dangerous Liaisons, I have Inglorious Bastards, and Pat has The Private Life of Henry VIII. In rom-com, Potter Edmund has You've Got Mail, Marlowe Midnight in Paris, Amanda Clueless, I have When Harry Met Sally, and Pat has It Happened One Night. In heist, Potter Edmund has Heat, Marlowe has Kelly's Heroes, Amanda has Le Cercle Rouge, I have Goodfellas, and Pat has The Killing. In Silent slash Musical, Potter Edmund has The Gold Rush, Marlowe has Fiddler on the Roof, Amanda, an American in Paris, I have the 2021 West Side Story, and Pat has The Lodger, a story of the London Fog. In Catholic, P Potter Edmund has The Godfather, Marlowe, a man for all seasons, Amanda, The Exorcist, I have The Tree of Life, and Pat, The Song of Bernadette. In Wildcard, Potter Edmund has the 1971 King Lear, Marlowe, the original, 1982, The Thing. We don't speak about That's the remake. That's not the original, though. Not oh, the original. is it not? The, oh, okay. There we the go. The Thing from Another World is uh, from the 1950s. Well, that's true. Maybe? That's true. But in terms of title, The Thing. The Thing, yes, but yes. correct. Fair enough. I was just trying to avoid speaking of the 2011 debacle. Um, but yes, Marlowe has The Thing. Amanda has The Grand Budapest Hotel. I have The Social Network. And Pat has Mishima, Mishima, 
A Life in Four Chapters. So those are our 30 choices. And now when this podcast goes public, we're going to put a vote on Twitter, a poll on Twitter, and let you all decide which of us chose best. And to the winner, go Eternal Glories on the website, which Pat has already pointed out he has anyway. But that's okay. <laughs> and yeah, this has been a fun little stupid exercise, but hopefully has given you some fun movies to check out now. Um, is there anything anyone would like to say in closing? How are you feeling about your picks? Uh, anything you wish we could have shouted out and didn't? Oh, Ocean's Eleven, by the way, was the highest that I was laughing no one had chosen. But there we go. I was expecting someone to choose Moonstruck, which would have been my other choice for uh, rom-com. Yep. That's a great So one. if I had voted for The Sting as a heist movie, would that have been shot down or could I have counted on the votes? Just hypothetically. I think I would have been there for you. I would have, yeah. I'm yeah, surprised. Sure. No mention of Reservoir Dogs. When well, it comes that was to the other one I alluded to, too, of budget concerns keeping you from showing the heist, right? Tarantino had no money in 1992, so he made a heist movie without a heist in Reservoir Dogs. But yeah. My other, my other choice for Wildcard was going to be Lost Horizon, which uh, would give me the opportunity to brag about my great aunt Janie, who stars in that movie, <laughs> Adaptation of Shangri-La. It's a pretty good movie, too, but. It's not quite uh, Paul Schofield's King Lear. <laughs> Potter, the oh, other yeah. one. Go ahead, Pat. Oh, I, the, the problem with Lost Horizon is that the preservation status of that movie is so complicated today between what's available in the 35 millimeter camera negative, what's available in safeties, what I think they have to rely on a 16 millimeter print from French Canadian television. I mean, you would think that for perhaps maybe the most offbeat of Capra's movies, um, one that isn't, you know, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington or It's a Wonderful Life, um, there would be a better preservation status. But, you know, it's a movie that was really almost lost. I think um, Bob Gitt at UCLA was in charge of doing heroic work to even put together what we have. It's, it's, it's a wonderful movie, and it's, it's a wonder that we have it to the extent that we do. Potter, the other one that I was hoping you would pick because I didn't get to pick was something from the before trilogy that we both really uh, yeah. love. Yeah. Um, and the second of those before sunset is my, my favorite of them. But even though I laugh a lot in those movies and before sunset has them kind of opposed at the start and spoiler alert, not so much at the end, uh, still clearly not, not a rom-com, but really fantastic movies with, Ethan Hawke and Julie Dempsey, is that her name? The great French actress? Yeah, Delpy. Delpy, thanks. Julie Delpy. Yeah. The first of those before sunrise is set in Vienna as well. It's true. We go from Vienna to Paris to somewhere in Greece. Yeah. Very good. I'm I'm slightly surprised that, I'm slightly surprised, Pat, you didn't choose Barry Lyndon for your costume drama. Right, me too. Because it is, I mean, it is one of the most amazing costume dramas ever made. (laughs) Yeah. Thought about it real hard, but tried to keep, um, because my big objection to the categories was that it seemed like silent musical was the old movies category. Um, Uh, Yeah. And I disagreed with limiting old movies to to silent movies and musicals. So I tried to choose classic movies in each of the categories. Um, Luckily, I just happened to think that the movies I chose were 
great regardless of the time. But no, that, that was, again, category discipline is liberalism. It's, it has to be resisted <laughs> in all its forms. All right. Well, we will see if our uh, Josiah's listeners agree with your assessment of your choices there. Uh, but no, this has been an absolute blast. And I think we ended up with 30 really great movies to recommend. And it was just a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. It's great talking to you all. Thank you. Thanks very much, Potter. <laughs> <laughs>